This is Africa Digest. to Channel Africa, always giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. We're here to make sure that you stay abreast of all things that have to do with Africa. Uh, right now, the time is 17.01. We will be having your sport as well as your economics news a little bit later on in the show. But right now, let's cross on over to the news desk where uh, Joel Anitulo is standing by to let us know what is happening in the latest news bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Twelve people, all civilians, have been killed in twin attacks in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Officials say the victims were massacred by machete and gun-wielding gangs thought to be allied to the ADF militia. In the first attack, nine civilians were killed and four others injured at the Oicha Mabesele near the city of Beni. At the same time, the Eringeti, three civilians, three civilians were killed, also by suspected ADF members. Two children were among those kills. The attacks come as the DRC battles an outbreak of Ebola that has since killed more than 1,700 people. Britain's new Prime Minister is Boris Johnson. The announcement was made at an event of the Conservative Party in London. Johnson beat Jeremy Hunt by garnering just over 92,000 votes to Hunt's 46,000. Johnson will now have to grapple with the issue of Brexit, an issue that forced his predecessor from office. In his first address as party leader, Johnson paid tribute to his rival, saying he is a fund of excellent ideas and that he intends stealing them. He also paid tribute to outgoing PM Theresa May. It was a privilege to serve in her cabinet and to see the passion and determination that she brought to the many causes that are her legacy, from equal pay for men and women to tackling the problems of mental health and racial discrimination in the criminal justice system. Thank you, Theresa. Thank you. Nigerian troops and police have clashed with Shiite Muslim marchers in the capital Abuja. Reuters is reporting that gunfire could also be heard. Soldiers and police officers have arrested people after the Shiite group marched in protest against the continued detention of its leader. This is despite a court ruling that he to be released. 
The Egyptian Council for the Regulation of Media and Information has urged media houses in Africa to sign an agreement that would enhance their cooperation. The regulator believes the agreement would help to come up with safety mechanisms for journalists assigned to cover stories and conflict zones. Media professionals from 28 African countries have converged on Cairo, Egypt to debate some of the critical issues facing the media. And finally, South Sudan's Information Minister Michael Makwe says the country's cabinet has banned anyone from singing the national anthem unless the president is present. Makai told AFP that different leaders and institutions were playing the anthem at whim, which was an abuse of the national tune. Makai says the national anthem is only meant for the president in a function only attended by the president and not for everybody. The order from President Salvaquia was passed during a cabinet meeting on Friday. The exceptions will be South Sudan's embassies, which represent the president and schools, where children are taught the anthem. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. We'll start it off in Ethiopia, where at least 25 people have died in clashes between Ethiopian security forces and activists in the Sadama region, southern Ethiopia. Uh, emboldened by political reforms introduced by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, since he took power last year, Sadama activists had announced that they would unilaterally declare a new regional state uh, last Thursday. But their plans were put on hold after their political party accepted a government's offer of a referendum in five months' time. Most of the activists that clashed with security forces during the protest accused the government of stalling the process. For some insights into the latest developments and what they mean for the region, Channel Africa spoke to Professor Jan Abink, a Horn of Africa expert. He says the Sadama referendum could set a bad precedent for Ethiopia. Well, yeah, there are two questions. Uh, is it risky? It might be, but is it possible? And that is yes, because under the Ethiopian constitution, the ethnic groups as defined in the constitution have the right when there is a majority in the regional state council for them to hold a referendum that they get, then they can do it after a certain period. So this process um, was set in motion by the Sidama in uh, uh, last year. You know, the, the, the southern region of Ethiopia, it's where they, where they live now, one of the big regional states in, uh, in, in Ethiopia, and the Sidama, about 3.8 million people, they are part of that. They have now their own uh, districts, but they want to have a full autonomous uh, regional state status within the, the, the federation. So that would mean, the, the, uh, you know, going away from the southern uh, region. Oh. So the constitution allows it, and now they, uh, they will do it because the next National Electoral Board of Ethiopia has accorded them to uh, to hold a referendum, but it will be held, you know, after uh, a couple of months and not immediately. And uh, the the young protesters, mainly the young protesters in Sidama in in their region, they uh, were asking for instant uh, uh, referendum, which is not, not very not very possible. Now, some observers say that uh, this constitutional provision that you spoke about, Prof, uh, that allows for self determination of. Uh, re- 
regions or nations is now a major challenge following the coming into office of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed as he initiated yeah. wide-ranging political reforms. Do you agree with this assessment? Absolutely. I mean, there is there is a new dynamics uh, unleashed since uh, uh, April last year when Abiy Ahmed came to power. Uh, to recall, he has significantly changed the whole political landscape of Ethiopia. Huh? I mean, there is real, genuine uh, democratization going on. A lot of repressive laws have been changed. He has, um, you know, injected a whole new atmosphere of, of political uh, uh, political life uh, in, in, in the country. But in the wake of that uh, wave of opening up and democratization, many groups in the country, ethnic groups, regional groups, have interpreted that move of tomorrow democratization in purely ethnic terms. They equate ethnic autonomy and ethnic rights and so forth with democratization, which are in principle not, not connected. But, you know, as a result of the heritage of 25 years of uh, EPRDF rule since 1991, where ethnicity was totally ingrained in, in the political model of Ethiopia as exclusive political identity, now many people and many minorities also no, not only minorities, also the larger peoples think that democracy, democracy equals ethnicization. And you have, we have seen a wave of, of, of uh, um, you know, of demands to, to have autonomy. It is probably inevitable, but I think it's also, indeed, as you suggested, it's quite risky because it, it opens up a whole new host of problems between uh, the, the various peoples, as well as on the substance of democratization within the ethnic units. And indeed, specifically about the Sidama case in the southern region, which is about uh, has about 40 45 ethnic groups you will probably see a kind of ripple effect that other ethnic groups uh, some of them rivals or self-perceived or uh, self-perceived rivals of the Sidama will also claim the statehood um, for themselves the regional statehood this latest because, development from the Sidama region yeah. have raised a number of uh, questions prof whether Prime Minister Abiy's honeymoon is over and the reforms could backfire what do you think will happen in the next uh, coming days? Are the protests going to continue, do you think? Yeah, I think so. There will be protests more low-key because this has been a great shock, this, this uh, lethal violence in the past uh, past days. We have to contextualize the violence. Eh? I mean, it's not only innocent protesters being killed. There was a major uh, disturbance in terms of many uh, out-of-hand demonstrators attacking property of non-Sidama in, in, in various towns in the south. The order, the, the forces of order the police and and, and the local uh, local um, troops are trying to uh, you know, trying to restore order in terms of not having people attack property of, of uh, shopkeepers and, and and so forth so there is a but this is this is yeah there will be there will be pressure of especially these younger activists on on the situation it will not help though because uh, the process of according them a referendum to decide on their status will be held in a couple of months in four or five months this has been uh, confirmed by the uh, the southern region and by the, the National Electoral Board. But indeed, protests will continue, but I guess uh, more low-key because they will not be very productive, I think, in the coming, in the coming weeks. That was Professor Jan Abink, Horn of Africa expert at Leiden University. He was talking uh, from Leiden uh, to Kumbelo Munzelele. The 10th International AIDS Society Conference on HIV Science underway in the Mexican capital is said to give the world 
the latest uh, update data in the realm of HIV science as over 5,000 delegates, among them health specialists and leading world scientists, are together. Our Zambian correspondent Arthur Davies Sukopo is in Mexico and gives us this report. Over 5,000 people, among them health specialists and leading world scientists from over 130 countries, are gathered in Mexico City, Mexico, for the 10th International AIDS Society Conference on HIV Science, IAS 2019. The conference is focusing on the science of HIV, gains or progress being made in finding the cure, and also vaccines, among other critical HIV interventions, being rolled out. International health bodies such as UNS and the World Health Organization, WHO, will release latest reports in the realm of HIV, while new discoveries of drugs and latest treatment of HIV are also expected to be revealed at the conference. Anton Pozianak is IAS president, who during the official opening of the conference outlined what is expected. Well, what about dolutegravir, a neural tube signal, which we heard about last year? It gave us concerns about how it would affect dolutegravir global rollout. Here in Mexico, we'll see the latest data from Botswana and elsewhere, and the updated recommendations from the World Health Organization on dolutegravir and its use in women of reproductive potential. We'll also hear about new tools and new opportunities in prevention, including data using TAF as PrEP, and the first ever human trial of an HIV prevention implant, a potential game-changer. We'll have data on new drugs in resource-limited settings and updates on studies that challenge the daily three-drug therapy paradigm. And what about CURE? That agenda started here in Mexico at AIDS 2008, and there'll be the latest on broadly neutral antibodies and data to support a phase three vaccine trial. He further calls for stakeholders to put science into practice and the need for leaders to understand the importance for science in development. We need leadership that understands the importance of science, the importance of meaningful engagement with those most impacted by the epidemic and who can stand up against discriminatory and stigmatizing laws and legislation. Leaders need to understand that the right to health is non-negotiable and should not compete with other funding priorities. And IAS 2019 local scientific chair, Brenda Ramirez, called for the decriminalization of activities around lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender and intersex, or LGBTIs, and respect for human rights. She has since called on all governments around the world to support the fight against HIV by providing healthcare services to all, regardless of their social orientation. Globally, we must unite to face the challenges of deteriorating human rights climate, repressive and punitive national laws, increasing xenophobia and social exclusion, and the national widening, the, the widening gap between those with and without access to health services. Most African countries have representation at the conference by both government and the non-governmental organizations. Arthur Devsiscopo reporting for Channel Africa in Mexico City, Mexico. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment, 
to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLeg to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. 20 years after the signing of the airspace agreement amongst African countries in Yamasukro, Cote d'Ivoire, the continent has remained behind the schedule, causing the aviation industry in Africa less productive. Uh, Silvanas Karamera reports from Kigali. The Yamsuklo airspace agreement was signed in 1999 to facilitate the opening of the African skies for equal benefits for Africans crossing borders to each other. 20 years later, the African Union believes nothing has been achieved. In a bid to tackle this continental issue, some experts from the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa have embarked on a continental workshop that aims at sensitizing the African countries to open up their skies for the collective gains. The attendees of the capacity building workshop held in Kigali on liberalizing aviation in Africa say that the slow pace of the implementation of the agreement keeps the African aviation industry poor and less developed. With this period of time, however, some achievements have been cited as a modest step made that requires more push. Achievements including a wave of visa for some countries and to sign all instruments aimed at liberalizing aviation sector in Africa are what Rwanda's Minister of Infrastructure, Ambassador Kleva Gatete, admits some countries in Africa are closer to the point. But in order to promote any businesses on the African continent that would uh, facilitate uh, the, the, the promotion of the, market, of the African market, it requires more investments in the airline business. And that's why for the Afri- continental free trade area, to succeed, air transport is a big component of that market. Rwanda has fulfilled all the requirements that are there. All the laws have been uh, put in place. But I think what is important here is that we have to work with other countries to make sure that they also fulfill all the requirements. And once we all do that, then it facilitates uh, and promotes the, travel, the air travel on the African continent. That way it makes it cheaper. It also encourages more investment in the airlines. The fact that some African countries are still moving slowly in ways of opening up skies is one of the reasons why it is difficult for an African passenger to travel from one point of east on the continent to another in west of the continent. Experts warn that this also keeps African airlines small and fragmented. Apart from sorting out these problems, if effectively implemented, consumers say Yamsukro decision will also tackle some of the issues they say have persisted on the continent over the years. The, the major problem is that we have not been able to level legislation and understand that African aviation need to be liberalized, meaning that aviation should be actually be uh, about no borders, you know. We need to be comfortable when you are moving from one country to another. And if there are regulations, for example, uh, issues to do with um, visas and all those kind of, they need to be standardized.
so that you know you have a, 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 a legal regime that applies in Kenya as it will apply in Rwanda. But to tell you how governments don't respect consumer interests is that even this meeting, we have had the Minister for Infrastructure, but we didn't hear about uh, probably a consumer voice. Uh, you know, local consumer voice should have been on the opening program. But the fact that government think that markets, you know, the owners of the airlines are everything in aviation, that is the beginning of the problem. So until we recognize that the consumer and the demand side is as important as the supply side, we'll never get right on aviation. According to the statistics from the International Air Transport Association, IATA, in this year, 2019, the African continent's aviation industry is projected to register a loss of about 300 million US dollars. African Civil Aviation Commission says that there are these challenges which make them prepare more workshops to make sure that the entire continent moves together, but several countries kept on delaying its implementation. However, during the 30th Ordinary Summit held last year in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, heads of states adopted some instruments of the Amsukro decision, including competition rules, consumer protection, dispute settlement mechanism, among others. Silvanus Kalimera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. A risk assessment by health authorities in South Africa has revealed how the risk of spreading uh, of the Ebola disease to the country remains low. There are, currently no, there are currently no cases of Ebola in South Africa, nor are there any suspected cases under investigation. The Democratic Republic of Congo has been experiencing an Ebola outbreak for nearly a year. The disease has infected more than 2,500 people and killed close to 1,700 of them. More from Professor Lucille Bloomberg, Deputy Director for the National Institute for Communicable Diseases. Well, you can't um, know that it's low risk until you've conducted a proper risk assessment. And all countries in Africa have had this exercise applied to them. So if you look at where the outbreak is, the greatest risk is spread within the DRC region. And then, obviously, to surrounding countries that border the outbreak region, there is a high risk. Uh, Rwanda, Uganda, South Sudan, Burundi would all be considered high risk. Just remember that you know the outbreak has been ongoing and at high level for almost a year now, and there's really been only two cases, uh, three cases identified crossing the border into Uganda. It was very rapidly identified, very good training there, very good response, and then more recently a case, uh, imported case into Goma, but uh, no other cases. So you know I think the the risk is really very high within the region, very low outside of the identified countries that I've mentioned within Africa. And we fall into the low risk. We're quite some way from the outbreak. There's no direct uh, flights to the outbreak area. It's very unlikely that a patient with Ebola would be able to travel safely and arrive at a destination at the bottom of the continent. So it's never a no risk, but it's, it's really a low risk. But isn't news of such an assessment likely to cause panic among the South African public? I think we must put it into perspective. As I mentioned, there has been no exportation of uh, any cases outside of the identified risk countries, and the outbreak's been going on for a year. I think we do have quite a, a good record of responding to viral hemorrhagic fevers in South Africa. We have Congo fever of our own. We do have a high uh, security level laboratory that can diagnose 
really quite quickly and confirm any suspected cases or exclude the diagnosis of viral hemorrhagic fevers. And I think the, the other area to, to look at is, although it's not that easy to transmit, it's not airborne, you need to handle blood and body fluids without any protection, without gloves, of infected patients. So it's people looking after patients in the home setting, as happens in the outbreak area, or healthcare workers uh, who don't have protective clothing. So it's not total spread. Not airborne. Despite some of the best efforts by different partners, why do you think it has been difficult to control the outbreak in the DRC? Well, you know, I think people know what to do. Identify a patient with suspected Ebola, confirm the diagnosis. We have rapid tests now that can easily be applied close to the field, isolate, allow healthcare workers to nurse them with protective clothing, and break that chain of transmission. Many of the Transmissions are occurring, occurring in the home, home setting where family members care for patients who've got a lot of diarrhea, a lot of vomiting, sometimes some bleeding, that's actually not very common. And then there's a problem of traditional burials where there's very, very close contact with body fluids. So it's an area that um, has a lot of conflict, a lot of security issues, there's a lot of mobility of, of populations within the area to seek health care um, or for, for trade. Um, but I think it's the community suspicion of many of the interventions. It's the difficult political climate. It's the very, very difficult security issues uh, and problems in the area that have really compounded uh, huge efforts to try and control the outbreak. So now being declared a public health emergency, the risk remains within the outbreak area and with the countries close by or areas of the DRC that are close, we really need a much more intense response and definitely resources, very expensive outbreak to respond to. And what advice do you have for both the South African healthcare workers and people who've travelled to DRC's affected areas, especially given that some of the symptoms of malaria and Ebola are quite similar? So first of all, I think malaria remains a very common cause of fever in travelers in Africa. And I think it's really critical that people take precautions to prevent malaria when they travel through Africa. They don't want to be confused with Ebola and uh, get the wrong label and not be managed for malaria. So I think it's to take the appropriate precautions. And then for healthcare workers, and there's quite a lot of training going on here, it's to recognize uh, the scenario. It would be a patient with uh, fever, intense diarrhea, extreme tiredness, who has a history of having been in the outbreak area and having had direct contact with somebody with the suspected or confirmed Ebola. It's not the rest of the travelers, but it's for healthcare workers to be aware of that and uh, to ask proper histories and just uh, be vigilant. And South Africa's health system, is it in a position to detect and manage cases of Ebola should the disease be imported to the country? Well, I think it's important if there is a case to identify the first one, to contain it, to not allow it to spread. We do have some identified isolation facilities. We do have a high security laboratory where the uh, diagnosis can be made, confirmed quite quickly. And we do have quite a lot of experience of recognizing and managing other viral hemorrhagic fevers, which um, we do see from time to time, Congo fever, farmers, etc. So I think there's a fair amount of experience 
And then, uh, yeah, if you remember that, malaria, malaria, malaria is the, uh, the likely cause of the fever, and that really uh, can respond very well to early treatment. And that was Professor Lucille Bloomberg, Deputy Director for the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Ledicha. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Hi, Nelson Hodesasap Mandela. And I solemnly and sincerely promise that we'll always promote all that will advance the Republic and oppose all that may harm it. And maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic. I, Matamera Siro Ramaphosa, swear that I will be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. So help me God. Channel Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Seventeen thirty Central African time. Let's cross on over to the news desk for the latest news headlines. Good afternoon. I'm Jolani Tulo making headlines. Nigerian troops and police have clashed with Shiite Muslim marches in the capital, Abuja. Congratulations are pouring in from leaders around the world for Britain's new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. And finally, South Sudan's Information Minister says that the country's cabinet has banned anyone from singing the national anthem unless the president is present. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Approximately 16 million girls aged between 15 to 19 give birth each year in the developing regions of the world, which include South Africa. For many adolescents, pregnancy and childbirth are neither planned nor wanted. This makes the need for young people to make better informed sexual health decisions as great as ever. In an effort to promote and advocate for responsible sexual behavior, condom manufacturer Jurex South Africa is running initiatives such as Connected, which delivers sexual health resources to schools nationally. For more on this campaign, here's brand manager at Durex, Molly Kumalo. So the problem within South Africa, obviously, as you know, is that there is a big presence in terms of HIV AIDS. And with that, um, ourselves as Durex feel that, you know, just to give you some stats, approximately 16 million girls aged between 15 to 19 years within the country, for example, give birth um, each year. And in terms of HIV AIDS, uh, the stats are quite high in terms of, you know, younger people that are contracting HIV AIDS. So as a brand, um, Jurex feels that we need to advocate for these issues um, and create initiatives that educate people about responsible sexual behavior, sexual health, and unwanted teenage pregnancies. Now, tell us more about efforts to address this problem. How exactly is Durex going about addressing issues around sexual health? So Durex is basically developed a program called Connect Ed, which aims to educate high school learners between the grades of 8 and 12 on the prevention of HIV, AIDS, and things such as teenage pregnancies, um, issues such as sexual abuse and sexual health. Basically, the program seeks to empower learners to make better sexual health decisions and to empower educators to provide better support to learners. With this program, we also aim to provide and equip educators with um, sexual education material, such as our Connect Ed Buddy program, which is basically a website where you know learners can actually go on and ask these questions that they're so afraid to ask, and get you know responses in a confidential format in order to drive this education. And for how long have you been doing this, and what has been the impact so far? So basically, the program was initiated in 2012, and as of 2019, our target is actually to reach about 400 schools in South Africa and further roll out this program at an even bigger scale in 2020 in order to carry on driving the momentum. And, you know, once again, I'm speaking to the fact that we would like to become the advocate that speaks to these important issues. Molly, what would you say are some of the interesting things that you've heard on the ground from teenagers that still shock you? What are young people saying when it comes to issues around teenage pregnancy, HIV and sex? Personally, you know, I actually attended a session that we did uh, on Mandela Day, and it was actually a school in Soweto, Pimville. And basically, some of the things that came up is that they did not know as something that we deem as, you know, we expect people to know, but they did not know, for example, that you can only use a condom once. So they feel that, you know, I've used it and I can reuse it because obviously it's rubber material, etc. And we had to then further educate that, you know, you can only use it once and then it needs to be disposed of, etc. There was also a lot of things that came up that there's a perception that if you're using the pill that you are 100% protected. And this for me was actually an eye-opener to the fact that young people have these misconceptions and are not necessarily 
equipped with the right education to understand how to protect themselves from things like unwanted pregnancies, HIV and AIDS, etc. So definitely these are things that we are tackling almost, you know, every time we go out and we go to these schools. It's always an eye-opener for me that, you know, these young people actually don't understand the implications of some of the decisions that they make. So these are quite serious issues that, that we're dealing with. And I think Connect Ed really aims to make sure that we are giving them the right information and tools to help them. It is also said that very few people use condoms in South Africa. How do we better deal with that? I think, um, to be honest with you, one of the things around Connect Ed is actually a campaign we developed called Hashtag Own Your Situation. And what what came up from this campaign is that, for example, it's not necessarily that people don't want to use a condom. There are just certain barriers when it comes to condom usage. So I'll give you an example. A simple thing as to walking into a store and actually making the purchase, some people could be embarrassed of that. And what um, hashtag own your situation tries to do is to alleviate those anxieties, to actually say that it is okay because you are taking a step to protect yourself and therefore you should be able to own your situation and purchase a condom. So I think we are trying to tackle those issues because it's not necessarily not wanting to use it, but it could be certain anxieties and barriers when it comes to using a condom. It also appears, Molly, that especially young people, they are often more worried about falling pregnant rather than contracting HIV. Um, For instance, you'd find young people who have had unprotected sex worried that they may have conceived as a result rather than thinking of the chances of them contracting HIV or any other STI. Absolutely. So basically, this is why ConnectAid is so important because You know, as I mentioned before, there is that misconception that, you know, the assumption rather that if somebody is using the pill that they are 100% protected. And which is what we try to drive with ConnectAid is that these are the stats within our country. And this is the reality of the situation. It's not only HIV AIDS that you're exposed to. It could be STIs, etc. So it's also equipping them with that knowledge and, and driving that that thinking and the conversation, that it stays at top of mind. Molly, thank you so much. Any closing remarks? Absolutely. What we would like to drive is further, you know, interaction with with the hashtag own your situation. We have developed a lot of interesting videos which can be accessed um, on our website, which is www.jurex.co.za, or our Facebook page, where people can actually go and see that we do understand that there's, for example, moments where you're embarrassed to purchase a condom, etc. And we found interesting ways of dealing with those anxieties. And that was Molly Kumalo, brand manager at Durex South Africa, a condom manufacturing company on the line talking to Jane Rabutata. South Africa's Drama for Life program is collaborating with the Swedish National Theatre Unga Clara to partner at a cutting-edge conference and festival to be held in Johannesburg. The groundbreaking collaboration will take place at the 11th Drama for Life International Conference and Festival with the theme Transforming Arts, Transforming Lives. Towards a child-centered society reflecting the biggest by uh, national investment in children's culture in Southern Africa to date. Registrations are now open for the program, running from the 8th until the 17th of next month. More from Drama for Life director Warren Nebe. 
we are having a conference and festival, and the, the focus is on creating a child-centered society. And the whole idea about this is what would it mean for us to transform our society so that it was truly democratic and truly embraced our children in a way that we recognize them and we wholeheartedly embrace them as human beings with ideas, emotions, full personality. And we're doing this through primarily through theater. And this collaboration is fantastic. So we are hosting the National Theatre of Sweden called Unga Clara. They are internationally renowned for their groundbreaking work with children and adolescents and youth. Their work is aesthetically challenging, beautiful. They have this extraordinary theatre company. And I think what's really healthy for us in terms of embracing them and bringing them here is that they're looking at critical issues with young people that are relevant to us as well in a way that they really understand how information is assimilated by young people. So we're not about work that is condescending, patronizing, kind of Walt Disney-esque in its form. We're interested in work that is playful and beautiful and charming, but at the same time deeply challenging. And so we're working with them, and our Drama for Life Theatre Company is going to be presenting six works as well. We're also doing a collaborative production with the Unger Clara, where we, each actor is being paired off with a, a Swedish actor, and the production's called My True Selves. So we'll be having seven uh, shows of My True Selves, different productions. And that's for eight-year-olds, and it's all about inviting eight-year-olds to imagine all the possibilities of who they can be. Let's talk about yeah, these sure. uh, young children. Where will they be coming from? Are they part of a program? No. We, so we are inviting. So it's open to the public, number one. It's open to schools and community centers. But we're also engaging with schools across the city and speaking to them and organizing. And we want diverse groups of young people coming in, and particularly groups of young people who don't have the opportunity to go to the theater and witness live theater, the magic of theater, to come in. So that's part of our program, is to really bring people in. And so if anyone is interested, they just need to phone us. What will essentially be happening? What will these children be doing? Will they be taking part in, in the festivities? Will they be watching? They will be central to the festivities. So they will be arriving, they'll meet storytellers, they'll be taken into the theater, they'll be witnessing performances that are geared and shaped and produced just for them. And adults will, if they want to attend, which they should, and they will be delighted by the work, will be able to attend as well, but they will be sitting at the back because it's all about the children. And how important is um, uh, such festivities, children going to the theater, how important is it to their development and also exposing them to uh, different facets of life? I think it's incredibly important. I think it's central. I think that theater, performing arts, the arts help develop symbolic thinking. They encourage and develop play. And we know that play is fundamental to the development of a young person into their adulthood. The ability to think creatively, to think out of the box, to be able to problem solve, to be able to engage with different complex situations, that is all, play is deeply rooted in that. And of course, the interpersonal skills and the communication skills.
And then over and above that is the subject matter. You know, so one of the performances that the Drama for Life Theatre Company is going to be doing is for six and seven-year-olds in particular, and it's called Rainbow Flower, which is written by Steg Kali, and it is about pollution, and it's about our environment, the degradation of our environment, and it is a beautiful tale that is performed and told in a way that you cannot walk out there without understanding your responsibility in terms of taking care of the environment. And that was Warren Nibi, Drama for Life Director, on the line talking to Tuto Ngobeni. 1743 Africa Digest will continue right after this. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. 1745. Hello, Leander. Hey, Samara. How are you? Hey, man. Alive, man. You're alive. Yourself? I'm, I'm doing very well. I'm mm. doing very well. So I'm seeing that in, in uh, economics news, the International Monetary Fund has uh, cut the economic growth forecast for the Middle East and North Africa. What does this mean for us? Essentially, um, it, it may not necessarily have an impact on us, but mm-hmm. what it essentially means is that the factors in the country there, they they influence their decisions because the in, um, the International Monetary Fund, what they do is that they do continuous studies right. to look at the economic trends in terms of production versus the issues of labor and so on and so forth. So I think when they look at that, it forced them to cut down their growth focus for oh, those right. uh, countries. 1745 Central African Time, uh, Luanda Maume has more with regards to the economics news after this. Thank you very much, Samora. Zimbabwe's Energy Regulatory Authority, ZERA, has implemented a 22% increase in the prices of petrol and diesel. Its CEO, Eddington Mazambani, says the increase in fuel prices was inevitable due to an increase in handling costs. The latest fuel increase in Zimbabwe is the second in as many weeks. 
Electricity tariffs for municipalities in South Africa increased by an average of 13.07% on the 1st of July, continuing the trend of above inflation annual price increases of grid-based power. Absorbing operating costs becomes exceedingly difficult with each new tariff increase from ESCOM. This is according to Henry van Edefeld, senior consultant at Solar PV and Energy Storage at Energy Partners Solar, a leading energy solutions provider in South Africa. Edefeld says that the tariff hike will have a negative impact on South African businesses. The impact, I guess, is, is distributed according to how much electricity different businesses are using. If their operation requires a lot of electricity, if it's a core part of their operational cost, the effect is way more significant. And we see that especially in the in the retail sector for companies that try to keep food cold or hot and quite a big impact in the industrial section, um, farming communities, uh, that's a very big impact. Delegates at the Alan Gray Investment Summit in Johannesburg here in South Africa have heard that the country still presents attractive investment opportunities despite the tough economic environment. They have also been told that South Africa's subdued economic growth, the stubbornly high unemployment rate and the government debt levels have resulted in reluctance to investment. However, these should be viewed as short-term challenges which are expected to pass in the long term. Experts lauded efforts taken by the new administration under President Cyril Ramaphosa to improve governance at key state institutions and say this will raise confidence among investors. Chief Economist Stanley Kevin Ling says the government bonds remain a good investment choice. There are investment opportunities. It's not as if there's nothing to invest in. If you invest in a South African government bond, the yield on that sits at around 8.5%, which effectively means if you hold that to maturity, your return is around 8.5%. If your fund manager is a little bit skilled, maybe he can get that return up to 9%. That is a very decent return. And I think that it suggests a low-risk investment that you can put in your portfolio. The International Monetary Fund has cut the economic growth forecast for the Middle East and North Africa. In its World Economic Outlook update, the global lender projected economic growth for the Middle East, North Africa, Afghanistan and Pakistan for this year that it would be 1%. The downgrade, the fifth in a year, is a half a percentage point lower than its April prediction. The IMF says the price of oil, the main driver for revenues in the region, will also impact growth. Taking a look at your economic indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading as 350 at 30 Nigerian Naira, 1043 Botswana Bula at 182.18 cents Kenyan shilling at 12.77 Zambian Kwacha. In a BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 374 Brazilian Real, 63 Russian Ruble and 68.81 Indian Rupee, 688 Chinese Yuan and 1389 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 80 pence to the British pound and 89 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities now, gold is trading at $1,417 and platinum at $844 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $6. $63.32 a barrel. For Economic News, I'm Luanda Maume.
Let's cross on over to the sports desk. Here's Neto Chimani with your latest sporting news. With the latest Channel Africa sports news at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. From the sports desk, a very good evening. Starting off with cricket news. Opening batsman Jason Roy and fast bowler Ollie Stone will make their England test debut in a one-off match against Ireland, starting at Lodz tomorrow. Surrey star Roy is set to end his first test cap after raking up an impressive 443 runs in England's triumphant 50-overs World Cup campaign. Roy is poised to bet at the top of the order with Surrey teammate Rory Benz in a four-day match against Ireland and will have an opportunity to impress the selectors ahead of the Ashes series against Australia starting on the 1st of August. The 29-year-old Roy says that it is a very new challenge and something he has been excited for and nervous for the last couple of years. On to soccer news. With just over a week until the start of the South African Absa Premiership season, Cape Town City have started a drive to sell more season tickets this season. City are hoping to at least double their season ticket sales from last season and have reduced the prices on the package deal fans of the club. City's media liaison officer Julian Bailey explains the new plans. Similar to last season, we, wanna, we wanted to get in a bit early. Um, get some support for the for the home matches this season i think over the last three seasons the support has grown significantly um, last season we managed to sell uh, around 350 season tickets our aim is to double that this season um, that's why the price has come down as well from last season and to renew the season ticket is even less so yeah we want to we want to give the boys all the support that we can uh, we're going to go on a few initiatives around cape town to a few uh, amateur clubs to a few schools, um, a few malls to just to drive the, the season ticket business and hopefully the, the Cape Town public take to it. Bailey says they have also managed to secure Cape Town Stadium for the majority of the games of the season. We've managed to secure Cape Town Stadium for a lot more matches. Um, we've had to change one or two fixtures to, to accommodate the fact that we need the stadium. Um, we, we get a bigger support at Cape Town Stadium and generally the, the Cape Town City fans um, enjoy uh, Cape Town Stadium a lot more. And, and the season ticket uh, secures your seat. It saves you a lot of effort from going to compute ticket. There's always issues around uh, getting tickets. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that works for us in our favor. The fact that we'll play at Cape Town Stadium and, and get a big, big crowd at all of our home games this season. Bailey adds that there will be special match day activations for season ticket holders. We've actually had a few meetings already about it. Um, to have half-time activations for season ticket holders specifically and we've selected a few matches where uh, new fans who, who don't traditionally have a season ticket can also stand a chance to win a season ticket and also win a couple of other merchandise items, win a few VIP experiences, win a lunch with the coach, that kind of things. So we've tried to, to come up with new things and refresh it once again and, and definitely as time goes on we'll add more and more onto that. And finally, in swimming news, South African swimming sensation Chad Letlaw has booked his place in the final of the men's 200-meter butterfly at the FINA World Championships in Guangzhou, South Korea. 
The 27-year-old who won Olympic gold in this event at the 2012 London Olympics when he stunned Michael Phelps finished second in his semi-final today in a time of 155.88 and that was enough to put him fifth fastest overall. The final will take place on Friday. Meanwhile, another fellow South African swimmer, Tatjana Schoenmaker, finished sixth in the final of the women's 100-meter breaststroke at the FINA World Championships in Guangzhou, South Korea today. Schoenmaker posted a time of 106.60. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. This is Africa Digest. All right, that's how we close it off for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for yet another hour of Africa Digest, where we will be bringing you more news from an African perspective. But for now, from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leander Maome, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, as well as the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for lending us your ears. If you want to get in contact with us, you can do so by sending us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, or you can tweet us at Channel Africa One. And in the background, closing off the show right now is Ndikete Wena by Ami Faku. We'll see you again later. Tempa